open your Bible to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1, we're going to start in the very beginning of the book of Judges this morning. And as you're turning there, I'm going to, I'm going to grab my, uh, my staff. Uh, I, the first time I, I pulled this out and used it, I was, I was talking about Moses, and it just kind of felt appropriate uh, to have when, uh, when Moses, I was talking about Moses. And uh, so I was wondering about whether or not I'm, I should kind of be done with it. But I'm like, well, we're still sort of following up on what the legacy of Moses. So I just feel like I'm going to hang on to it for a little while longer. One day it may disappear, but for now I still have it. So uh, this is my tribute to Moses and shepherds all over. <laughs> okay, so let's read together in the book of Judges. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, if you've got a different version, it'll sound a little different. Uh, but we'll begin reading in verse 19. All right. So here's what the, the scripture says. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now skip down to verse 21. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who had inhabited Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Skip down to verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning and we begin this time of, of study through the book of Judges, God, I pray that you will make it alive. Lord, I pray that you will take uh, the preparation that, that I have invested in the message this morning and God, that you will multiply it miraculously like loaves and fishes. God, that you will uh, just... Let each hearer, whether they're here or whether they're watching online, God, to hear exactly what it is that your spirit needs them to hear to respond and, and in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. So God, anoint your word this morning, anoint me as I bring it, and God, let it be fresh in the ears of all listeners and all God's people said together, amen. amen. All right. So... As we said at the start of the service this morning, most of us would love to live a victorious life. I mean, we would. We'd love to be like Rocky and we just, we just take out anything that would want to conquer us before it can conquer us. That we get the upper hand and we take it out before it can take us out. But as you read that last section there of, of verse 27, it says the Canaanites... That's the people that were already in the promised land. The Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Now, I think in many ways, the Canaanites represent sin and the temptation of sin. And God told his people before they ever, ever, ever got into the promised land, hey, when you get there, you make sure that you drive them completely out from among you. But the Canaanites were determined 
to dwell in the land. You know what that tells me? Church, that tells me that sin does not give up easily. Sin is stubborn. And in fact, as I was reading this, I got, a, I got an image of sin of kind of like the bad guy in every horror movie I've ever seen. Uh, we used to go down and see my grandparents down in Charleston, and my grandmother, she loved horror movies. And so every time we'd go visit them, we'd always stay up and watch the late Friday night movie in, in, uh, on, the, on her TV, and it was always a horror movie. And she loved horror movies. And in every horror movie we ever watched, You've seen this happen if you've ever watched one. So the bad guy is out just, you know, creating mayhem everywhere, right? Just whacking people out and, and taking people out. And somewhere in the course of the movie, uh, a couple of people wind up knocking out the bad guy, right? Right? You've seen this, right? So the bad guy goes down and here's, here's what happens every time. So the two people who finally took him out, they walk 10 feet away from him and they sit down. And they comfort each other. Oh, my goodness. This was so hard. I'm so glad that's over. And my grandmother would sit and she'd stare at the screen. Go! Don't stay there! Don't stay there! Keep going! How many of you have seen that happen? Right? How many of you have ever screamed at your TV while you were watching the horror movie? And that's why I loved watching horror movies with my grandma because she'd do it every time. And while they're sitting there, this is always what happened. Here's the bad guy down. They thought they'd had him out. And he'd go. <laughs> he stands up and they're still sitting there like, run! Is that what happens or not? Over and over and over again. So instead, instead of either taking him out and making sure that he's out, which I've never quite understood. Why don't you just finish him off while he's down? Amen. And if you don't want to take that step, then just get as far away as you can. Church, I'm telling you, that's how most of us unfortunately deal with sin. And I will tell you, as we read the book of Judges and as you evaluate your own, the course of your own life, you realize that sin is stubborn and over and over again in this chapter, we see tribe after tribe after tribe fail to eliminate once and for all the very people that God said to eliminate, which represents our closeness to sin. In church, keeping sin or the temptation to sin close is incredibly unwise. God said, wipe it out, drive it out, get rid of it but they kept it close. And, and later, just a couple of verses later, we read that they finally got strong. Israel had journeyed across the desert for 40 years. They were a little wore out, but they finally got strong. And even after they got strong enough to completely eliminate the Canaanites, you know what the Bible tells us that they did? They turned them into slaves. They still kept them close. And here's what happens with us in sin all the time. We have something that we want to be done with, we want to be rid of, but we wind up keeping it far closer than we should. We, we sort of, I, I think that in many ways, a lot of us would prefer to have sort of a miraculous experience of deliverance or freedom from a particular sin or addiction or challenge in our life. It'd be like, uh, I'll just 
uh, I'm not picking on anybody who smokes here because I actually don't know if anybody smokes. I assume somebody does, so I'm not trying to pick on you because I don't know if you do, all right? But let's just say this is a pack of cigarettes. And here's, here's how we, we deal with sin. We're just going to let cigarettes uh, be, be a stand-in for all sin, all right? So we, we set the pack down, and we know that that's a struggle for us, and we lay it there. We say, God, if you want me to stop smoking and I want to stop smoking, you just take that away right now. Just take it away. Just go ahead and take it away. Anytime. Well, it's still there, so I guess, you know, uh, I'll, just, I'll just leave it right there. And that's what we do. We want God to take it away, whatever it is. But you know what the normal pattern of victorious living is in Scripture? It is one of daily surrender. That is the normal pattern of victorious living that we find in Scripture. It is daily surrender, not one miraculous event where you're one and done. You're like Rocky. You knock it out, never to deal with it again. That's not normal in the Christian experience. But what is normal is the process of daily surrender. Now, there's a term that we used to use in the church world. We don't use it a whole lot anymore. It's called sanctification. And sanctification is simply a word that means the the gradual growth process of surrendering to God's will in our lives. And if you think that that is not the accurate picture of victory, let me share a couple of passages of Scripture with you that I'm sure you'll be familiar with, but I want you to point them and connect them to this point. So the first one is found in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when Jesus said, if anybody desires to come after me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily. Daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 31, he said, I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ, Jesus our Lord, that I die, how often? Daily. Daily. Church, that's probably the two most prominent voices in all of the New Testament is Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and both of them are telling us to do something daily, and that is to die to ourselves and make ourselves alive to God's will in our lives. That is a daily surrender, and that is how we find victorious living. But that is not, that is not what God's people did in the book of Judges, when they got into the promised land, they had a few initial victories, but they didn't keep it up. And you know what? A lot of times we'll have an initial victory over something in our lives, and then we think, well, it's done. It's like that, that bad guy in the horror movie, he's down, he's never coming back, but sin is way too stubborn to quit on you. So it requires a daily surrender, a continuous push against the things that would destroy us. So look down now in chapter two. And we're gonna look at verse three. Chapter two, verse three. Therefore, I also said, this is God talking. He said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side And their gods shall be a snare, or as another translation puts it, a constant temptation to you. Now flip over to verse 14 and 15. Same chapter, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. 
And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had said and the Lord had sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. So God said, drive them out. It's a process of daily surrender, of following God's direction, of resisting sin and temptation and pushing it as far away from you as you possibly can. And God's people in the book of Judges failed to continue to do that. And so God said, I'm going to stop driving them out from among you. They're going to become a constant thorn in your side, a constant temptation, and ultimately, I'm going to let you be conquered. Now, church, at some point, and I, I, don't, I don't know if, if you really have processed this thought or not, but at some point, God will leave us to our own consequences if we fail to follow his clear command over and over and over again. God did not just say once. He said, oh, multiple times before they got into the promised land, drive them out completely. In chapter one, we see over and over again, that's exactly what they did not do. And when God has said, this is what I'm commanding you to do, and we continue over and over and over again to follow God's command, at some point, God's going to say, okay, all right, I'm going to let you have the natural consequence of the direction that you are trying so hard to move in and deal with the consequences that come with that. And he said, and I'm even gonna let you be conquered. And I gotta tell you, it's a scary thought to me that we can get to a point where we can no longer resist the very thing that will ultimately conquer and destroy us. When you know that that thing, whatever it is, that person, that addiction, that desire, that direction, whatever, when you know that it's going to mess you up, when you know it's going to destroy you, when you know it's going to wreak havoc in your life, and yet you still keep moving straight in that direction. It's scary to me that we can ever let that happen, but we do. And that's exactly what happened to God's people in this particular place. And when we get there, that sin can take us to levels of despair we never thought that we could go to, but there we are. And if you think, well, you know, coach, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I think that God would allow that to happen. Well, let me again reference a few passages of scripture that would suggest that that is in fact exactly what God allows to happen. I'm gonna put all three of them on the screen for you here. So beginning in Genesis, this is both a, a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament verses. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, the Lord said, Well, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Just not going to do it. He knew that man's heart was wicked. And he said, my spirit will not strive with them forever. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, he said, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... 
God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't even matter what he's talking about there. Here's the, here's the key to that. God will turn you over to a messed up way of thinking if you continue to pursue something that is in opposition to his clear command. Sooner or later, he's going to let you go there. Luke chapter 15, verse 13. This is from the, the, the uh, story of the prodigal son. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. He lost everything he had. He wound up in the worst possible circumstance he could ever imagine. Actually worse than he could imagine. Now, why do I even bring that one up? Because the father represents God in that story and the father could have stopped him. Right? The father could have stopped him. But the father let him go and let him destroy his life by pursuing his own desire instead of the desires of his father. Church, sooner or later, in our walk with God, if we keep pushing against God's clear command, if we keep going in the wrong direction, at some point, God is going to say, I'm going to turn you over and let you go, and the consequences are going to be terrible. And I got to tell you, this is one of the reasons why I am always baffled and I scratch my head at the resistance of God's people to engage in active and regular repentance. It's like repent, even in the church, is a bad word. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But if I ask you to raise your hands, how many of you are embarrassed to say that you need to repent? There'd be a lot of hands go up because you don't want anybody to think you've messed up. You don't want anybody to think that you got anything going on in your life that needs repenting of. And that is one of the biggest problems, is one of the biggest lies in that the devil t- whispers into the ears of God's people in churches all over America, including this one, because we're full of sinners, is that, oh man, you got your act together, don't let anybody know that you're not almost perfect. Why do you think the world calls so many churches full of hypocrites? Because we come to church and we act like we're all good. We come to church and we act like we have never messed up. And the world sees how we really live. The world sees how we really talk. The world sees how we really think. But we come to church and we act all pious. I'm stepping on some toes now, ain't I? All right, brother. I've never understood this, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret. We all need to repent on a regular basis, including your pastor, including your worship leader, including your youth leader, including your associate pastor, including everybody in every seat in this church this morning. We all need to repent on a regular basis, not just once in salvation but on a regular basis. And, and here's, here's, here's part of the reason why I don't understand why we're scared to repent. Because repentance restores relationship. 
Do you know why you feel like you got a wall between you and God? Is because there is unconfessed, unrepented of sin there. You know it. You know it. I know it. And you feel that wall, you feel that bear. Well, God's just not as close as he used to be. That's because you built a wall. You've got unconfessed, unrepented of sin in your life, and you don't want anybody to know it. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to acknowledge it. So we'll just live with an unrepentant state. If you want that fresh wind of God's Holy Spirit to blow through your life again, if you want to feel close to the Lord again, then get on your knees and confess and repent, and it restores the relationship. Amen? I'll tell you what else repentance does. It keeps our resistance levels to temptation at a healthy level. Repentance is like a booster shot. Now, I'm going to speak for my own life, and I can only say that in my own life, I got to think that many of you have dealt with the same thing, but there have been seasons in my life where I knew I had unconfessed, unrepented sin in my life between me and God, and you know what the devil whispers into my heart and into my ear while I'm in that state? Well, you're already in a bad place. You might as well just go farther. You ever heard that in your own mind? You ever heard the devil whisper that into your ear? Well, you're already in a wrong place between you and God. You might as well just keep going. Save it for later, right? Go ahead and get all your fun in now. Do all the sin. I mean, there's no point in confessing now. You might as well sin a little more and save it for later. And you know why we can't resist? is because we don't stay freshly confessed and repented of before the Lord. Because when we do, it's like a booster shot that raises our strength, raises our resistance levels to temptation in our life. And when we fail to do that, we wind up in terrible places. Uh, God said in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6, And he's talking about his own people here. He said, I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes in to the battle. Nobody wanted to admit that they'd done anything wrong. What have I done? I haven't done anything wrong. And they turn around and they run headlong into the battle that they are not prepared to fight. Stubborn. Not only is sin stubborn, but so are God's people. Church, don't reach that point. Don't reach the point of Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6. Make a decision today. We'll have an altar time where you can respond to the word of God in your life. We're going to have an altar time. If you need Jesus for salvation, you come get that. If you need a fresh experience with God, or you need a fresh start with God, or you just need a booster shot, come kneel at the altar and confess anything that stands between you and the Lord this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and the Lord will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Church, that's, that's the God that we serve. That's what he offers. Today is the day of salvation. Today he's near. Today he's willing to receive your repentance. Today he's ready to restore that relationship. Don't take a chance. Respond today at the end of this service. Let's keep reading in chapter 2. Let's look in, verses, in, in verse, chap, uh, verse 8 in chapter 2. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris and in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, when they'd all passed away, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. This is a, just, just a frightening passage of Scripture to me. You think that all of God had done in the, in the course of, of delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them and miraculously providing for them for 40 years as they wandered through the desert, taking them finally into the promised land and helping them inhabit a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua passes off the scene. The commanders and the leaders of Israel that were part of that generation passed off the scene. And the Bible tells us that a generation raised up after them that did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Church, we must, we must, we must pass down the love of the Lord and the commitment to follow him to each successive generation. And we have to not only share it, we have to show it because if we don't, they will reject the faith of God. We used to have probably the blessing of God to live in a country where the, the sort of the underpinnings of, of our culture were sort of still grounded on, on biblical truth, on the Bible. That's not true anymore. And even if you had a home or a church that didn't necessarily show God, if you didn't show it to your children or your church didn't always show it in the way that it ought to, your children might still grow up and know who God is and know what he's done. That day is gone. That day is gone. And so what that means is this depends on us in this church and in your house to make sure that the generation that God has entrusted to us in here, they know who God is and they know what he's done. And it's got to be seen in your own home. Mom and dad, if you're still raising kids, they need to see that it's real. you got to show that faith to them. You can't just talk about it. Erica and Rick, you know what? They get your kids a few hours a week. You know how many hours you got them? All the rest. You can't expect... The, the, the children's minister and the youth minister of this church to fill in all of those other hours. 
You gotta live this thing out in your home. They've gotta see it. They gotta know that it's real. Because if we don't do that, and by the way, church, even if you are done with your child raising, you ain't done with your child raising. Because God has entrusted children to, to our, uh, our teaching, our discipleship in this church. They may not be yours, but they're yours. And that's why they've got to see it not only in their mom and dad in their house, they got to see it in the rest of us that are showing up to church. Because if we don't, we will be responsible for the exact same thing that happened in Judges, that a generation will raise up that doesn't know who God is and doesn't know what he did. God forbid that happening here. Continue reading, chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And yet, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. They bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass that when the judge was dead, that they reverted and they behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So the pattern that we will see over and over and over through the entire book of Judges is established right here in this passage of Scripture. Joshua had passed off the scene. A generation rised up, doesn't know God, doesn't know what he did, so they're going to live any way that they choose. So God allows his children to wind up in a bad place. He allows them to start enduring suffering. And as they begin enduring suffering, they start thinking, oh, yeah, what about this God that we heard about? And then they start crying out, God, if you're really there, God, God, help us, help us, help us, save us. Come on, come on, God, come out and show us who you really are. And then God in his mercy, over and over again, he would show back up, he would raise up a judge that he would bless, and that judge would lead them to deliverance from their oppressors, from their enemies, and they would have another season of knowing who God was. But as soon as that judge would die, guess what? They all went back to their own wicked ways. And after each judge, it got worse and worse and worse. And you know why I think that happened? Is because we are prone to follow people, not God. Church, don't ever follow a person because people will let you down. You know why? Because we're sinners. We're flawed. There's only one perfect being in this universe, and that is God Almighty. And when we start to follow people, we will wind up in places that we never thought we would go. There are men that were in ministry that I used to admire who have gone so far off the deep end, I don't even recognize who they are anymore. You go, well, that would never happen. You don't know that. I pray to the Lord that that would never happen to me. I don't believe it would. 
but I've watched men of God who I thought that would never happen to, and guess what? It happened to them. Some of you may have seen, I didn't even plan to talk about this, but some of you may have seen a guy by the name of Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris wrote a book quite a few years ago called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. How many of you ever heard of that book? I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was part of the purity culture. And hey, that's a great thing, right? Because God tells us to be pure. And he was pastoring a church in Maryland, young man, and he wrote this book on I Kiss Dating Goodbye and, and really encouraged Christians all over America to engage in courtship instead of dating. Uh, he has had a very, very high profile voice in the evangelical Christianity. He came out in the last week and a half. He has divorced his wife of 20 years and he has renounced his faith. Completely. He said, by every measurement that I know, I am not a Christian. Pastored. 20 years. Wrote books that impacted millions of followers, millions of believers. When you follow a person, no matter how God may bless or anoint their ministry, when you follow a person, that person can ultimately fail and mess up. But when we keep our eyes on God, when they go down, we're still going up. So this is a cycle that continued over and over and over again. So now let's continue to read in chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. God intentionally, deliberately chose not to drive them out so that he could test them. Church, here's the point of that. The hardships and the challenges that we often face are tests that God puts in place to reveal our true heart, our true commitment. Will we trust God or will we follow another way? Will we choose another way? Will we say, God, wherever you lead, I'll follow. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. Even though it's hard, even though this is a difficult situation, or will we choose an easier way out? And, and here's something I want you to write down. I want you to, to burn this into your heart and your memory. Never, ever, ever let a hardship or difficult circumstance define your faith or your future. Just don't. Because I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here and you are sitting there, you're going to have days, you're going to have moments that are hard that make you question your faith. But never let a hardship or that circumstance determine your faith or your future. You stay committed to God. You stay committed to his truth. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust a circumstance. Don't trust a moment. Stay true to the course of what God has charted for you and keep moving in his direction. Now, in Judges chapter 3, we're introduced to the first three judges. We're not going to talk about them this morning, but you have Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. But we're going to move on to the last or the last part of our message this morning. And it's the fourth judge that God raised up and it's Deborah. 
So I'm going to ask the worship team to come to the platform. And we're, as they do that, we're going to read through verses 6 through 9. And so Deborah sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. So Deborah says, hey, Barak, God's got a plan. You need to take these 10,000 guys. You need to go out. He's going to bring the guy that's been raised up against Israel. He's going to bring him against you, but God's going to deliver him into your hand. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, then I won't go. And so she said, I will surely go with you, but nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey that you are about to take. Barak, Barak failed to take the position of leadership that God was asking him to take. Here's the point of that. God will do what he wants to do. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God is God, and he is sovereign, and he commands all things. He doesn't need you to, to, to get done what he wants to have done. He doesn't need me. But here's what he does. He invites us to participate with him in what he is doing so that we can be blessed by it. What a beautiful thing that God does. And Barak said, no. I'll go if you go, but if you don't go, I'm not going because Barak simply would not exercise the faith that God calls us all to live in. Look down at verse 14 real quick. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So he got up and he went out into battle. Here's, here's, here's the point that I want to make about that in verse 14. If we're following Jesus, if we're following Jesus, then isn't he already out in front of us? I mean, if we're following him, he's already out in front of us, right? And if he's out in front of us, does that not assure us that he's doing what he needs to do and preparing the way for us to do what we need to do? Does it not mean that? And so Deborah, as a judge, offers an opportunity for Barak to know the blessing of God on his life because he steps out in faith and does what God wants him to do. But Barak, like so many of us, would prefer trusting what he can see, not the God that he can't see. And he lost the blessing because of it. Church, there are a lot of you this morning that when somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I see this in you. I think that you would really be good at serving in this way. I think that, that you would really be good, that God could use you if you would step out and do this particular thing. And too many times we go, hmm, I'm not feeling it. 
And you know what? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to make that work. But you know who does need it? You do. Because when you fail to step out just like Barak, God's going to have victory one way or the other. But you can either enjoy the blessing by participating with him, or you can lose the blessing by passing. So last point this morning, and that is don't be like Barak. Have the courage and take action and follow Jesus right here, right now. I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, as we begin to respond to the message this morning, I pray that everybody will have the courage to not trust what they can see, but trust the one they can't. Lord, to be humble enough to repent of anything and everything. God, and there's no one here today that doesn't need to repent. Every one of us need to bow our hearts and humble ourselves before the Lord to freshen that walk with you and to have a a booster shot against the the temptations of sin in our life. So God, whether somebody needs to receive you today in salvation or somebody needs to step out in faith and begin serving or whether somebody needs to step out and conquer the very things that have been coming against them, God, whatever it is, I pray that everybody today will have the courage to act on what you're calling them to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So the altars are open. This is our time to respond to God. Don't be afraid. Don't wait. Let's make it happen. Let's please God. Let's honor him with our decisions.